It is good to be back, and I want to extend my welcome along with those that have already been extended and my appreciation to Scott for teaching through the book of James, preaching through James in my absence. It is good to see you here this morning. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Micah. And I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. In Micah chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 is where we'll start. But rather than reading from the ESV or the other translations that I normally preach out of, I'm going to read this morning from the New Living Translation. We're starting a four-week study of the book of Micah. And again, with names that we're not familiar with, many of us, and places that we're not familiar with. And I want to make sure that we get a good grasp of this. We'll be, I will be using the ESV. I will be using the New American Standard. I will be using the New Living Translation just to give you something, to, a challenge for you as we go through this study. But we begin today, and I want us to begin with the first five verses of the first chapter, and then the last several verses of the last chapter, Micah 7, 18 through 20. I invite you to read along with me in whatever translation you have as we read both the introduction and the conclusion of this book together. Micah chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord gave this message to Micah of Moresheth. During the years when Jothan, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were the kings of Judah, the visions he saw concerned both Samaria and Jerusalem. Attention, or hear, or listen. Let all the people of the world listen. Let the earth and everything in it hear. The sovereign Lord is making accusations against you. The Lord speaks from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming. He leaves his throne in heaven and tramples the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath his feet and flow into the valleys like wax into the fire. Like water pouring down a hill. And why is this happening? Because of the rebellion of Israel. Yes, the sins of the whole nation. And who is to blame for Israel's rebellion? Samaria. It's capital city. And where is the center of idolatry in Judah? Why, it's in Jerusalem. It's capital. And so we begin here, but I want us to move to the last several passages, last several verses of Micah. Micah chapter 7, we'll read verses 18 through 20. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Where is another like you, or who is a God like you? who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people. You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet. You will throw them into the depths of the ocean. You will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised to our ancestors, Abraham and Jacob long ago. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have, your people, together with one another in your presence this morning. Thank you for those who you chose to speak years ago and who still speak today for the prophet Micah, the mission and the ministry and the calling you gave upon him. Thank you for preserving your word that you gave him, the vision that came to him. Thank you for being a God who does not change a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, a God who is faithful, both holy and merciful. 
Father, as we worship you this morning, we pray that you will find the attitudes of our heart acceptable. We pray that the words of our mouth will be pleasing to you, be glorified in us. It is in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen.
Your cross, O oh Lord, taught me to see that though I fail you every day, your steadfast love will not fail me, but gladly bears my sin away. And there I see your holy fire consuming sin in mercy's blood. What righteousness and love require to ransom sinners to their God? Your cross, O oh Lord, taught me to weep, for there my sin led you away, and even the sun did bow in grief. As darkness crowned our darkest day And oh, to think that I once stood Indifferent to your suffering And oh, to see your sweat like blood Such depths of sorrow born for me Your cross, O oh Lord, taught me to love, for there I've tasted love divine. It fills my heart with power enough to make your costly service mine. No sin too great to meet with grace, no enemy too foul to bless. Your loving wounds of sacrifice Teach me, O Lord, to love like this Your cross, O Lord, taught me to sing For now my captive soul is free No guilt, no fear, no suffering can tear away your love from me. No song can reach such heights of joy. No time can tell such depths of peace. No power, no time can e'er destroy the eternal praise for Calvary. No song can reach such heights of joy. No tongue can tell such steps of peace. No power, no time can ever destroy the eternal praise for Calvary. Please be seated. Amen. Amen. What a Savior we serve. What a Savior. Suzanne and I are glad to be back. It is, I don't know that ever since high school have I taken that much time off consecutively. And it was a great blessing to us to drive some 6,000 miles with grandchildren in the car. We learned a lot during the time. No, it was a wonderful time for family and a time of refreshing, and we're grateful. And we're grateful to be back. Our family was certainly blessed by our time together. Just as an update, our daughter Chrissy and son-in-law Brandon have made it safely to Kodiak, Alaska with four of our precious grandchildren in tow. And so they are there. And again, as I mentioned, I'm grateful for all of your faithfulness, particularly over the last month, and including those of you who joined us at the campus of Greenville High School yesterday to pray for the students, the teachers, the faculty, the staff, and the administration. School starting... Are you glad? 
<laughs> this is great. I love the response. There are about four or five people who are always, yes, and everybody else is like, no. Well, school is starting back. It is that time of year, and I told Suzanne, after having been gone from several weeks, the first day back in the office, I had my backpack, and I had my work clothes on, my church clothes on. I felt like a kid going back to school after summer break. It was nice to be, nice to be back. We're starting a series this week that's going to last four weeks, as Lord willing, on the book of Micah. I don't know about you. I do know that when we go through the Bible, reading the Bible in a year, a lot of us will read through the book of Micah, and it takes typically two days in a daily Bible reading through the Bible in a year to read through the book. It's only seven chapters long. But other than that, most of us don't spend a lot of time in the minor prophets. And just a few things about prophets. In the Old Testament, you have the major prophets, uh, and then you have the minor prophets. And sometimes we think that's some sort of qualification or characterization. I want to tell you simply a grouping of the books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Limitations, Ezekiel. These are major prophets because of the length of the prophecy. In the Hebrew Old Testament, there are 12 minor prophets and they're only minor because they are shorter, and the messages tend to be more specific to a sp certain geographical area and a certain time. You also have prophets who are, when the children of Israel, before they were captured by Assyria and then Babylon, you have those who, before they went into exile, called pre-exilic prophets. Then you have those who prophesied, spoke the word of the Lord during the exile, 70 years in Babylon, and then you have those who prophesied when they returned to Jerusalem, pre-exilic, exilic, post-exilic. Micah is in the first group of this. Let's talk about Micah just a little bit. As a matter of fact, I would encourage you to follow along with your listening guide. The first thing we want to look at is Micah the man. Verse 1 says, The Lord gave this message to Micah of Moresheth during the years when Jotham Ahaz and Hezekiah were kings of Judah. These are visions. This is God's word to him that he saw that concerned both Samaria and Judah. I want to mention just a couple of things about this. Not much is given us in this text about this great prophet. He is grouped with other minor prophets. Um, the prophets are grouped into time periods and the his name itself is where we want to begin. The shortened, this is, Micah is the shortened form of Michael. And it means who is like, and what goes along with that, what is understood is our God, which is the name of our series and the name of this first message. Who is like our God? Sometimes you will see it, who is like God, or who is like Jehovah, or who is like our Lord. And that is the heart of his message. You may be wondering, why would we care about a country preacher from almost 3,000 years ago in his message? And the answer is, it's God's message in which God reveals his nature and his character and his behavior toward his covenant people. And the God that spoke to Micah and the God that spoke to Samaria and Jerusalem is the same God that speaks to you and me today. He is the Lord. He does not change. He speaks God's word, Micah does, to reveal what God is like. And that is certainly the focus of our study. A little bit more is told about him. He is of Morasheth. Anybody been there lately? Familiar with it? Show up in your Bible atlas. Why? Because it's a small country town about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It's just 17 miles away from Tekoa, which is the hometown of Amos, another country preacher and prophet. It's just another small town. Micah is really just good country stock. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say that? 
just a good old boy. He's a country preacher, but he was very aware of his world. He was very aware of what was happening in the city. He was very aware of what was taking place in his country. We have a lot to learn as we study this book. There is something about the simplicity and the clarity that comes through our study of this country preacher's message. It says he, he preached in the days of Jothan, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Those were the kings of Judah. Are you guys familiar with the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and the division? You know, there was King David and a united kingdom and Solomon, the heyday of all of Israel. And then there came Rehoboam and Rehoboam <coughs> did some very foolish things. And what happened was the kingdom split. So you had about 10 or 10 and a half tribes that went to the north, the pink on this map. And that's called many times Israel, sometimes Ephraim. And a capital city was built in Samaria, if you can see it on the, on the map up there, the red star. The southern part remained, it was really about two and a half or three tribes groups that remained in the south. And Jerusalem is the capital there. And that's where Solomon's temple was. Uh, and so there were actually two different kingdoms, Israel to the north with Samaria as his capital. You will be familiar with some of the stories. You guys remember the story of Ahab and Jezebel and the prophet Elijah? That's in the northern kingdom. As a matter of fact, they had a capital in Samaria. And there is an allusion in Micah to how Ahab treated Naboth and Naboth's vineyard. We'll come back to that. The northern kingdom had a series of kings. And the series of kings were all, almost all, but... All of them rebelling against God, not worshiping in Jerusalem. They were those who did not follow God, who did evil, but they worshiped either Baal, Baal, or no gods at all. A temple to actually, to Baal was built there in Samaria. And you'll notice that Micah doesn't mention any of the northern kings when he's talking about this time. But he does mention three kings of the south. He does mentioned Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah during this same time period when, when Micah was preaching and Israel was kind of imploding from the effects of evil and unfaithful leadership, Judah was on a roller coaster ride. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. And Israel would have times of a godly king and uh, turning back to God. And then there would be a king who would follow and he would turn his back on God. And then there would be a revival or a resurrection and another king would come. Jotham was good, recorded in 2 Kings 15. Ahaz, an evil king, 2 Kings 16. Hezekiah, a good king, 2 Kings 18. So they were just kind of up and down. They would at one time ascend to the heights of his destiny and then fall in the doldrums in the next. And so a country preacher from a country town begins to preach, and he spoke directly during the times of these leaders. And we can be sure that his messages were heard, not only in the countryside, but in the cities. And as a matter of fact, the cities were his target. Now, who else was preaching about the same time? You guys familiar with Isaiah? 66 books, some of the most sophisticated Hebrew language ever recorded in history. Isaiah, who could visit the courts of kings. Isaiah, who was a, a, a theologian, a, a vessel used by God uh, to the upper parts of society as well as throughout the countryside. He was there at the same time as Hosea, whose compassion for Israel in the north. You guys will be familiar with Hosea and Gomer and the illustration that God gave about his faithfulness and the unfaithfulness of Israel. He was the same time as Hosea. And he was close on the heels of Amos, another country preacher I've already mentioned from Tekoa. A sycamore farmer who took up his ministry in the north at Bethel, the house of God. The sanctuary of the king. And that's the context in which Micah lived and preached. Uh, one of the commentaries said it was a mighty quartet of preachers. And I want to mention this. I do believe that there are times when God just raises up 
good and godly men who will proclaim the word of God faithfully to the crowds. Uh, the Lord sends particular men to a particular time with specific gifts and callings to fill the land with his truth, and that's true of us today. Many of you will be familiar with the likes of um, Charles Stanley, Chuck Swindoll, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, Mark Dever, Sinclair Ferguson. Any of those names ring a bell? And there are more. You can name more giants in the pulpits who proclaim the word of God, and we praise God for that. In our city, in our city, just around us, and I'm just going to name some of the men that I know who faithfully preach God's word in what sometimes is a difficult con context and sometimes just a blessed context. Matthew Elrod, two blocks over, preaching this morning. Uh, Will brought us two miles down the road, preaching the word of God. Richard Phillips, right down there on the corner. Charlie Boyd, over on the east side. Matt Rogers, on the north side. Matt Williams, in about seven different places around us. Brian Habig. And last Sunday, Susan and I got to worship with Jason Reed at the church at Piedmont Mill. Church plant that we are partners with, that we help to support. As a matter of fact, when I was studying Micah, Jason kept coming to mind. <laughs> Some of you will get that. Country preacher. <laughs> Standing up and expounding the word of God. And man, what a blessing. All of these people, different in personality and style, faithful to God's calling. You see, Micah had a specific burden, and it keeps showing up. And it is a burden of the sins of Israel that were reproached to God, that angered God, primarily against the poor, primarily against those who were under others' authority and power. I have, normally every week we give you home group study questions or follow-up questions, ways to go deeper into the text. And we've got a couple of those in your listening guide. But this week I've, I'm asking you to do something different. I want you to listen to a preacher from the last generation. The man's name is R.G. Lee, Robert G. Lee. He's a good South Carolina boy, and he's a Furman grad and Southern. And he preached at First Baptist New Orleans for a while after pastoring some churches up around Fort Mill and Rock Hill in that part of the state. But then he became the pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, and he was there for over 20, almost 30 years. And R.G. Lee was a great expositor of the preacher. His preaching style is very rhetorical he and and in this sermon particularly he basically does a great narrative of painting a preacher uh, a picture for those you, anybody here remember hearing dr dean crane preach anybody here all right praise the lord um good he preaches in the style of dr crane okay now you can look it up on video you can do the QR code in your worship guide and listen to it on audio. Be aware that this was recorded when technology was not near as advanced as it is today. So the recording quality is not great. Or you can read the text, but it is the sermon, Payday Someday. And the reason I want you to listen to it is because, number one, it's a tremendous sermon, but because that sermon parallels the message of Micah. The wealthy and the powerful abusing those who are under their authority and God's response to it. So, y'all like listening to sermons during the week, right? You'll, you'll do that with me and do that for me. I would encourage you to do so. God, but in this text and in this message, Micah also calls out the bad preachers and the bad prophets, those who have turned their back upon God, those who claim to speak for God, those who proclaim this is the word of the Lord, but they lie. They lie from their pulpits. They say things that aren't true. They say that God said this, and, 
things that God never said. Listen to this indictment that we find in chapter 3, verse 5. Micah preaches, says, this is what the Lord says, you false prophets are leading my people astray. You promise peace for those who give you food. You'll work for money. You declare war on those who refuse to feed you. You do not pronounce blessings upon the poor. Now, the night will close around you, cutting off all your visions. Darkness will cover you, putting an end to your predictions. The sun will set for you, prophets. Your day is coming to an end. Your seers will be put to shame. You fortune tellers will be disgraced. Remember, these are guys claiming to speak for God, and they're divinators, they're fortune tellers. You will cover your faces. There will be no answer from God. Just as we have great men of God today, I got to tell you, we've got people in pulpits across our country today and across this city and in this place today who stand up and say, we're a church and this is what God says, and yet they never preach the truth of God's word. They will tell you things that you want to hear. They will speak things to people with itching ears. They will succumb to the mentality of the day, and yet they do not proclaim the truth of God's word. How do you know the difference? How do you know the difference? You want to be as discerning as Micah is? Get in the Word of God. The Word of the Lord came to Micah. The Word of the Lord, listen to me, has come to you. Many of you hold it in your hand or you read it on your phone or we engage in it. It is the Bible, the Word of God that God inspired and that God has preserved and kept. And the more you're in the Word of God, the more you know of God, which is our purpose in this series, and the more you know of what God says and what God does not say. I will tell you, Micah goes on in, in, uh, in Micah chapter 3 in verse 8, and he gives us one of his key verses. He says, but as for me, in contrast to those false prophets, as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. I am filled with justice and strength to boldly declare Israel's sin and rebellion. Now, he's not bragging. He's simply giving his job description. And he's giving his authority. This is the word of the Lord. And the strength that I have is the strength that God has given me, not mine, not innate, bestowed. He is letting them know that this is indeed the word of God. He's telling the truth. And we see this. There's evidence for this. A hundred years later, Micah's prophetic message was still being asserted in the days of Jeremiah when the city was on the brink of destruction by Babylon. His message is quoted in Matthew chapter 1. You remember when? Matthew, you remember when? Uh, in the first part of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, when the wise men comes looking for Jesus, they consulted the prophet Micah. And in Jesus' preaching ministry, he quotes a passage from Micah chapter 7, verse 6, that is recorded in both Matthew 10 and in Luke chapter 12. Here's the point. If you belong to God, if you're a child of God, if you're one of His covenant people, if you've been saved and redeemed and washed by the blood, as we sang about this morning, you have a calling, you have a mission, a commission, a ministry, a task, whatever word you want to use. And God has placed you in a specific context. You are where you are at the hands of a providential God. And like Micah, we are called on to boldly share God's word in the context that he has placed you. Boldly share God's word. The good news and the bad news that precedes it in the context that he has placed you. All right, so that's Micah the man. We'll go further in that in the coming weeks. 
But right now, I want us to look at what we're going to be studying, the overview and structure of the book. This is an introduction. Suzanne and I went west. I have never driven west before. As a matter of fact, I had to look at the map of the United States to realize what states we were going through. We, kept, uh, we, we were riding down the road one night and said, welcome to Iowa. And I thought, Iowa's not on our itinerary. <laughs> and yet the road that we traveled cut the corner of Iowa before it went to whatever state is just west of Iowa. And we went right through there. There's a Kansas and Nebraska in there somewhere. It was very educational. But isn't it always good to know where you're going? Just nod. We'll go ahead. It is, all right? Well, now, rather than me, I, I gave you a, a, a little chart. I'm not going to refer to that. What I want to do instead is to show you a six-minute Bible project video that summarizes the book. Okay? So follow along on the screen as we share a summary, a map of the, of the book of Micah. Well, lived in a small town named Loretz in the southern kingdom of Israel, about the same time as Isaiah. Both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel had split long ago, and both had been violating their covenant with the God of Israel. So Micah warned that God would bring the big bad empire of Assyria to take out the northern kingdom and come ravage Jerusalem. And he also warned that after them, Babylon would bring an even greater destruction. Like all the prophets, Micah spoke on God's behalf to accuse Israel, or as he puts it in chapter 3, I am filled with strength, with the Spirit of God, with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. And so most of this book explores Micah's accusations and his warnings of God's judgment on Israel. But Micah also had a message of hope that countered these warnings about the restoration God would bring on the other side of his judgment. And if you dive into the book with us, you'll see how this works. So the first two sections of the book develop Micah's accusations and warnings against Israel and its leaders. So part one opens with the poetic description of God appearing over Israel, just like he did at Mount Sinai. There's fire and smoke and earthquake. But he hasn't come to make a covenant this time. He's come to bring his judgment on Israel for over 500 years of rebellion. Micah goes on to name all of these towns and cities in Israel that are the culprits of all of this rebellion, God's coming for them. But why exactly? So Micah picks a fight with Israel's leaders. He says that they've become wealthy through theft and greed. He alludes to the story of Ahab stealing a family vineyard from Naboth in 1 Kings chapter 21. But also it's because Israel's prophets are corrupt. They're quite happy to offer promises of God's protection to anyone who can afford to pay them. No, Micah says, God has withdrawn his protection from Israel. In the second section of accusations, Micah describes even more how Israel's leaders and prophets have together committed grave injustice. They run the land through bribery, they bend justice to favor the wealthy, and the poor are deprived of their land, their security, and their hope. And all of this is a violation of the laws of the Torah, which declare it illegal to sell land that belongs to families, even if they're poor. And so we find out that God's judgment is going to take the form of an oppressive nation that comes to take out the northern kingdom and Jerusalem and its temple, which will be reduced to ruins. Now these are very stiff warnings, and they're not the final word. Each of these warning sections is concluded with a striking promise of hope. 
So first is a poem about how God is like a shepherd who's going to rescue and regather his flock, which is the remnant of his people. And he's going to bring them all back to good pasture and become their king once more. The second warning section is concluded by picking up this image of the ruined Jerusalem temple. And Micah says this won't be permanent. One day God is going to exalt his temple. He's going to fill it with his presence and fill the city with the remnant of his people. And so God's purpose is to make Israel the meeting place of heaven and earth so that all nations will stream to Jerusalem where God becomes the king of all the nations, bringing peace to the earth. Now, these two concluding poems of hope, they're very powerful. And the next section of the book actually develops them further in a beautifully designed series of poems that are entirely about the future hope of Israel and the nations. So we learn that after the Assyrian attack, Israel will be conquered and exiled to Babylon. But from there, God will restore his people and bring them back to their land. And then we learn that in the new Jerusalem, a new messianic king from the line of David will come. He'll be born in Bethlehem and then rule in Jerusalem over the restored people of God. Finally, in this messianic kingdom of God, the faithful remnant of God's people will become that blessing among the nations. But at the same time, God will bring his final justice and remove evil from his world. The final section of the book returns to this pattern of warning followed by hope that we saw in the first parts of the book. So Micah exposes again the unjust economic practices of Israel's leaders and how it's destroying the land and its people. And here Micah offers his famous words that summarize what it means for Israel to follow their God. He has told you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is exactly what Israel has not been doing, and so they will come to ruin. However, the book ends with another powerful note of hope. Israel is personified as an individual who's sitting alone in shame and defeat. It's a clear image of Israel's destruction and exile. And this individual is watching for God's mercy, and he begs God to listen and forgive. But why? Why should God listen to and forgive this faithless and rebellious people? Well, the poet offers two reasons. First, he says, because of God's character. Who is a God like you who forgives sin and pardons rebellion? He knows that God's mercy is more powerful than his anger or his judgment. And the second reason is because of God's promises. He says, you will stay true to Jacob and show covenant love to Abraham as you swore so long ago. Now, these are the final words of the book. They're an allusion to God's covenant promises to Abraham and his family all the way back in the book of Genesis, that all nations would find God's blessing through Abraham's family. But to become a blessing to the nations, Israel must first be faithful to their God. And so this explains this back and forth between judgment and hope in the book of Micah. If God's going to bless the nations through Israel, then he must confront and judge the evil among his people. But his judgment is what leads to hope. Because God's covenant love and promise are more powerful than human evil, and his ultimate purpose is not to destroy, it's to save and redeem. Or as the concluding lines of the book put it, God delights in covenant love, so he will again show compassion. He will trample our evil. He will toss our sins into the depths of the sea. And that's what the book of Micah is all about. And what a message. What a message for today. 
What a message that matters for now. And so the way this book is divided, it outlines itself. Those of you who are preachers and teachers and those of you who study and proclaim, it is wonderful when God's Word actually just kind of lays itself out step by step. He begins in chapter 1, hear, all you people, listen. This is important for everyone to hear. And then chapter 3, hear, you rulers and leaders. And he goes on, and hear, you prophets. And so you have chapter 1 and 2, and then we're going to look at chapters 3 through 5, in which the kingdoms are contrasted, the current kingdoms and the sin that was taking place, and then the coming kingdom and God's hope. And then in chapter 6 and 7, he begins chapter 6 saying, Hero Mountains. And what you have here is basically an attorney making an indictment against the sin of the people, and then the proclamation of deliverance. Hear the Lord, hear, O mountains, is how he begins. And again, Micah's message reveals to us God's character, God's truth. It's important that we recognize that God is just, that God is holy, that God, because He is just and holy, judges sin. Listen, does God get angry? Does God get even? Does God hold a judge, a grudge? Sorry, He is a judge. Does He hold a grudge? Can God extend mercy, and does God extend mercy? Can He wash our sins away from us as far as the east is from the west and though them in the deepest sea? There's so many questions about God. Does His anger last forever? There, there's so much about God that is revealed in this book. I'm so excited about the days ahead. This four-week series may turn into a 12-week series. Who knows? But, but there's so much for us to learn about the Lord. One of the things that we see right off the bat off the bat is his justice. Micah's calling out the sin of his people. They've become blind to their sin or apathetic about it. And Micah's language is astonishing. The list of the cities in chapter 1, we'll get to this a little bit deeper next week, but I don't want don't to leave you with this. He gives a list of nine different cities or nine different locations, towns around, and he calls out their sin. And the way that he calls it out is a play on words that does not come through in the English, but is great in the Hebrew. We'll point out some of those. But it'd be like saying Greenville will become brown as it dies. Powdersville will become blown away in the wind. In traveler's rest, there will be no rest. And his language is poetic and beautiful. And he takes his words and with clarity and with an attractiveness that would bring people to listen and in the strength of the Holy Spirit, he convicts the people of their sin and points them to a God who not only judges, but to a God who has mercy and to a God who forgives. I'm sure there were those in those days who are complicating what it means to be a covenant member of God's family, to have a relationship with God. There were those who would say, you have to pay me before God will bless you. That's unfamiliar to anybody you see on TV today. There are those that say you have to do this or you have to do that. You have to go through this process. As a matter of fact, in Micah 6, he addresses some of that. He says, you say, what can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? And the implication is, no, God doesn't want your burnt offerings. Should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? And the answer is, no. Should we offer him thousands of rams? This is a reference back to Balak, by the way. And 10,000 rivers of oil? And the answer is, no. Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? No. And then with clarity and simplicity, he does not overcomplicate. He simplifies and clarifies what it means to live a life that glorifies God. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, 
to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Isn't that what we just sang? And so the application here, guys, is don't overcomplicate the Christian life. Don't overcomplicate the Christian life. Pursue God as a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through all of God's word through Micah, God is revealing himself, his character, his his nature, his actions, and his will. And we'll specifically focus on a few things. The third point on your outline today should be what is God like? Three of the great themes of the Bible form the backbone of this book. God is holy and he judges sin. But God is merciful and there is merciful restoration due to God's covenant faithfulness that is achieved through, at the time of this writing, a coming ruler, a coming shepherd king. And now, some 2,000 years after he came, we look back and celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the compassion that God's people must accordingly demonstrate to a watching world. If you don't know God, we want you to know him. Listen, he's real. Church... Church is so much more than getting in the the same room for an hour, hour and a half a week with people that you know, singing songs that are familiar, being encouraged by a speaker, and going home so you can make it through the next week. That's just not church. Being a people of God is being people who know God, who walk with God, who live that out, who have come to Him, acknowledging separation from God by sin. Acknowledging that God's provision for sin is what Micah prophesied about. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he's coming, the Messiah is coming to Bethlehem, the smallest, least important city of all. He's coming as a shepherd, Micah chapter 2. He's coming to establish a kingdom, a nation, and a people, Micah chapter 4. You see again and again, Micah talking about Jesus who is to come. And today we declare to you, he has come. He came and he lived a perfect and a sinless life, no sin. And because of that, qualified as God, fully God and fully man, he went to the cross to pay the penalty for sin. And so God's means of removing our sin from us as far as the east is from the west, as far as throwing them into the depths of the sea, is because he applied his wrath upon the innocent one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he offers forgiveness to us. God is holy and just. Don't miss this. God is holy, and because he is holy, he is unfailingly just. And God has dealt with sin consequences through the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And the way that we participate in this is we do what Jesus preached that we should do. We repent, we turn, we yield, we surrender. We believe, we trust, we entrust ourselves to him. And the consequence of that, The result of that, the evidence of that, is a life that puts on display His righteousness, His life in us and through us. I'll close this message with the, the phrase, Where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of His people? You won't stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you'll have compassion upon us. You will trample our sins under your feet. You will throw them into the depths of the ocean. You will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised our ancestors, Abraham and Jacob, long ago. How did he accomplish that? Through the death of his son, the Lord 
Jesus Christ. 